This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, this morning I've quite a moving and somewhat intense show for you. We're going to visit the writing room of one of Ireland's most enigmatic authors. That's the always interesting and fantastically honest John Banville. And hear why the sentence is one of man's greatest of inventions. The sentence is a remarkable thing. If I were to be asked what's the greatest invention of humankind, I would say it's a sentence. There have been great civilizations, the Aztecs or the Incas, I can't remember which. They didn't have the wheel, but they had to have the sentence because they couldn't have made a civilization without it. The sentence is what we think with, what we speak with, we declare love in, what we declare war in. And it's a great privilege to spend my life working in this essential medium of being human. And author Julia Zuka talks to me about her fascinating new book, The Buddha in the Attic, which tells the heartbreaking story of Japanese picture brides who travelled to America over 100 years ago. I was fascinated by these women's stories. I mean, culturally, they were so different. They were, you know, schooled not to develop strong characters, to do what you were told, and yet they thrust themselves into this very foreign and new culture, and they had no idea of how difficult life would be for them, I think, once they reached the American shores, and yet they stuck it out. Most of these marriages were not happy. I loved writing this story. I I just felt like I was living with these voices in my head for years, so even though it was kind of harrowing material, I felt very alive during the time that I was writing it. But first... John Banville is one of Ireland's greatest writing treasures. His style is without doubt unique and impressive. He's intellectual, critical, deeply sensitive and amazingly precise. Well, a few weeks ago, I took a stroll over Dublin's Haypenny Bridge and knocked on the door of John's Bachelor's Walk studio. I have to say I was very curious and quite excited to sit down and talk with John in his very private, creative space. So let's take a listen. And who's this artist here? Somebody I met in America a long time ago. She's lovely, isn't it? Mm, nice picture. It's really, really nice. So, John, thank you so much for inviting Talking Books into your writing room. We're on Bachelor's Walk. We're surrounded by the most interesting of bookshelves. Very mixed range of pictures. And there's a real feeling of home and a feeling of comfort here in your writing room. Well, you're very welcome here. Not many people get into this place, I can tell you. I like it here. Even though it's in the middle of the city, it's completely quiet during the day. I only work here from, you know, nine to six in the evening. Sometimes when I come back later in the day to pick up something, I'm astonished at how much noise there is because all the people have come back from work and they're having dinner and so on. Which is very nice, but it would be uh, be a bit disturbing. But there's one very nice thing that uh, over the last few years, a lot of immigrants have moved into the apartments and their children play down in the courtyard after school from about three o'clock on. And they've developed a kind of Esperanto that they speak and their voices drift up to me, and it's pure delight to hear them. I'm not one of those people who gets up at three in the morning to write while everybody else is asleep. I would find that very uncanny. I like to write with the sounds of the world around me. And in this writing room, we have John Banville and Benjamin Black. Can I start out by asking you about identity? Oh, yes, we all imagine that we are unitary beings, uh, singular creatures, but we're not. We're a, a bundle of personalities 
loosely gathered together. The example I always use is the man who gets up from the bed of his lover and goes into the street and meets his worst enemy. He's two entirely different people. I think this is a very good thing. This makes life wonderfully interesting. It would be dreadful if we were all just one person. We constantly invent ourselves from morning to night, and then when we dream, we invent ourselves even more lavishly. So yes, there is no, there's no pilot light burning in there that is me. I invent myself all the time, just as everybody does, whether they're aware of it or not. How important is the past to you as a writer? And do you think we actually are really true to our past? Are we honest in how we think about the past? Well, all novels, if they're written in the past tense, are about the past, essentially. Um, The notion that the novel can comment on contemporary events is very new. The great 19th century novelists, all their great novels are historical, set 20, 30, 40 years before their own time. That was accepted as the norm. I think that's still true. I don't think the novel can comment on contemporary events because there's this thing as contemporary events until they become the past. The past fascinates me as to why it is the past or when it is the past. Uh, is an hour ago the past? Is yesterday the past? Last month? It's a bit like those movies that, you know, when they get a bit old, they're just silly and people are wearing silly clothes and have laughable ways of speaking and so on. And then after a certain time, they become classics and begin to admire the clothes they wear and find rhythms in the way they speak that appeal to us. But when does that happen? When does a movie cross a particular divide and become a classic? And in the same way, when does the past become the past in capital letters? I don't know. So is art in some way trying to recreate the past? Oh, no. I mean, nobody could say what art is. Art is, you know, for every work of art makes art anew, makes definitions anew. So it would be very foolish to try to define what art is. That's one of the delights of it, uh, that you can't say what it is. You know it when you see it, when you hear it, when you feel it, but we can't say what it is. Um, for me, art is, is uh, if it has any function at all, it's to quicken the sense of being alive, both for the artist and for readers or viewers or listeners. Uh, the artist concentrates on the world, with extraordinary passion, kind of passion that very few people do. And the objects that are concentrated on don't expect to be noticed in this way. You know, they say, I'm just a stone in the street, I'm just a person passing by. Why are you why are you giving me such attention? And immediately the object concentrated on this begins to blush. We always blush in self consciousness when we're concentrated on. And it's when we blush that we're at our most vulnerable, our most self revelatory and our most self conscious. So that it seems to me is the task of the artist. <laughs> Word to make the world blush. Uh, and that's why I spend so much time dealing with objects. People say to me, you know, will you stop telling me about the weather and how things look? And so just tell me the bloody story. And I said, the story is the weather and the way things look and the feel of things, because that's the kind of art that I make. And in crafting your art, in crafting your story, how difficult can it get? And how much of a perfectionist are you about finding the perfect sentence, the perfect mixing of poetry, of fiction, and all the shapes and moods and colours and textures that go into your writing? Well, my my old friend, the late John McGowan, used to make a nice distinction. He said that uh, there's verse and there's prose and then there's poetry. Poetry can happen in either. But since we were both prose writers, we used to insist that it happens more often in prose than it does in verse. Again, poetry is something uh, indefinable. It's an essence, it's a luminosity, it's a a concentration. And that's what I try to do. I spend hours crafting my sentences. I sometimes look up from it and say, what am I doing here? Is this any way for a grown man to be passing his days? But the sentence is a remarkable thing. I've said many times that 
If I were to be asked what's the greatest invention of humankind, I would say it's a sentence. There have been great civilizations, the Aztecs or the Incas, I can't remember which. They didn't have the wheel, but they had to have the sentence because they couldn't have made a civilization without it. The sentence is what we think with, what we speak with, we declare our love in, what we declare war in. It's what we, our laws are made from, sentences. And it's a great privilege to spend my life working in this essential medium of being human. And in being human, you have to accept failure. You have to accept defeat. And then you have to continue on. You're, you clearly have a very brilliant mind and are also very imaginative and very curious in the world. But I imagine that can be a heavy burden as well. Well, it's difficult, of course. Anybody who's ever written a letter or a, a recipe or anything, anything you try to do in language is always difficult. Language is a very recalcitrant medium. I always think that the world is round but language is square. Fitting the two of them together is very difficult indeed. It's a fascinating thing to try to do. And of course, perfection is not of this world. We're after perfection, but we never get it. And as Beckett said, I mean, David Norris by now has made it into a cliche, you know, fail again, fail better. But this is all the artist can do. And rationally, we know that we're not going to make a perfect work of art. But there's another part of the brain that somehow believes that this time it will be perfect. It's a childish position to be in. It's sort of like a child covering his eyes and imagining that nobody can see him. It's as silly as that. But... This is one of the essences of art, is its silliness. As Wallace Stevens says, the essential gaudiness of poetry. That's one of the things I love about it. And writing as Benjamin Black, as distinct from writing as the, you know, literary authority John Banville, there are two different approaches. Do you have more fun with Benjamin Black? And how easy is it to switch between the two? Are you very disciplined about that? So we're sitting here today in Bachelor's Walk and it's John Banville writing John Banville. Or does Benjamin come in on certain days of the week and that you can write in, in Benjamin's voice? How do you do that? It's a mixing of identities. So there's a huge amount of juggling there. Um, I, I can't be Banville Black at the same time. I have to write a Banville book. And if I, I do a Benjamin Black book once a year, and I will put aside the Banville book I'm working on and do the Benjamin Black book in a matter of months. It's craftsmanship. It's a very great deal faster than Banville, probably ten times faster. It will take Banville three to five years to write a book. It will take Benjamin Black three to five months to write a book. Um, real crime writers go crackers when I say that because mm -hmm. they think I'm saying that it's easy or it's a lesser form. But it's simply different. It's a different way of working. With writing my, my crime fiction, I'm a craftsman and I work spontaneously. I work very fast. Uh, writing is bad. Well, I aspire to be some kind of artist. Uh, and what I employ there is concentration. So it's two entirely different ways of working. But I'm not two entirely different people. Uh, you know, I'm the same person with... You know, I write book reviews. I write film scripts. Uh, I've done stage plays. I'm a different person for each of those. But does a bad review cut you more as John Banville than Benjamin Black? And maybe are you more liberated in Benjamin Black in ways that you, you're less burdened? In that sense? Well, that's easily answered because I never read reviews. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Um, I suppose that if there were a very good reviewer and he saw through to the essential failures of a, of a John Banville book, I would be affected by that. But that's never likely to happen. I mean, the point is, I've lived with these books. I, you know, when I'm doing a book, I live with it for, as I say, three to five years. I know it inside out. Nobody can tell me anything more about it, and nobody can be more critical of it than I am. When I finish a book and it's gone and it's published, I feel nothing but embarrassment, another failure, another mortal sin. 
blemish. And is it that you feel that you feel you failed in your books because you you think you can improve upon them, or is it that is it that you feel you're constantly in learning mode? Oh, I'm constantly learning. I mean, I started writing when I was about 12 or 13, uh, 67, and uh, I'm still practicing. Uh, who knows? I'm on my deathbed. I might finally say, oh, okay, now I'm able to do it. Uh, there's a nice story of Henry James when he was in his, on his deathbed in a coma and his hand was still moving across the sheet, writing. So I hope that I'll be like that. The pen will drop from my hand as I gasp out my last breath. Failure is part of the artistic life, part of the artistic process. There's no way around it. Uh, we can't avoid it. We're human. We're not gods, although half the time we imagine we are. Uh, and, you know, a dash of failure, I suppose, humanizes the work of art. Nowadays, people say that uh, some of the greatest works of the 20th century are unfinished. You know, Proust book. There are a number of you know, Schoenberg's Moses and R and even going back, Beethoven's uh, great Opus 111, the last piano sonata, and only two movements in it. Somebody once asked him why I hadn't written the third one. He said, I didn't have time. And you mentioned Henry James there, and I know that you're very influenced by Emerson and Kafka and Beckett and other great thinkers, writers, philosophers, and obviously some scientists also. How have they influenced you, and are you continually shaped by new ideas? I don't think influence is quite the word. Um, An influence is a bad thing because you're merely parroting somebody else's work or somebody else's ideas. Um, I suppose they feed into into the mix uh, people's ideas, people's styles, people's ways of handling the medium. I mean, it used to be when I was writing my books, there were certain writers I couldn't read. I couldn't read Beckett or Nabokov or Henry James because I would start writing like them. Uh, now I think that I've finally I think, developed my own style. I don't worry about things like that. But uh, I admire Henry James. I mean, people always say, oh, my influences are Beckett and and, uh, Nabokov. But my real influences are Henry James and W.B. Yeats. You see, one can sound superficially a little like Nabokov or Beckett Mm. because they're very, very distinct, completely uh, inimitable styles. Well, they are imitable, but they're completely identifiable styles. But uh, a James or or a Yeats, they don't have quite the same tone of voice, but they are, to me... Uh, the two emblematic writers of my time. And Emerson, of course, is a great essayist. But the number of people that I've read and the number of people whom you might say influenced me, practically every book I've ever read, probably the the biggest influence in my early days is the Catholic catechism, you know, has all the answers. Who made the world? God made the world. Why did God make the world? It goes on and on. It tells you all about what simony is and what you shouldn't be doing with your first cousin and so on. I mean, it's, it's all the answers are there. They're all completely spurious, but they are answers. And when one is young, they do seem to uh, to sum up the world. So that was a very influential book. I used to read Just William books by Richmond Crompton. Every time I finished one of those, I would cry. I was so sad to be finishing a book. I read P.G. Woodhouse. I read... Evelyn Waugh, I read the great English comic writers. They were hugely influential. So is great art and producing great art or great pieces of art as John Banville, is that your religion? Is that your connection? Is that your spirituality? Is that how you relate to the world? Well, there's a great difference between religion and spirituality. I mean, you couldn't be an artist and not be spiritual in some way. Uh, It doesn't have to be religious. Mm. Um, It seems to me that religions have done more damage to the world than almost anything else. If you look at the the influence of monotheism, religions with just one god at the centre of them, they have millions have been slaughtered and are still being slaughtered in the name of this one all-powerful god. I say bring back the pagans, you know, the ancient Greeks. The genius of the ancient Greeks was to devise a mythology which was so individual, so particular, that it could explain anything. 
everything that happened, the wind blew past you and knocked down something, it was the God, it was the God. That would be a much better way than, than thinking that there's one terrible eye in the sky watching us, watching everything we do and condemning us for it. Uh, it has poisoned our lives. So down with monotheism and back with paganism. And your writing is um, um, intensely lyrical. It's very, very musical. And you mentioned Beethoven to me earlier. How big an influence is music on your writing? Does it affect your mood as a writer? You're, so we're sitting here in the, in the room and I can imagine whether it's Mahler or Wagner or whatever, that there's definitely music being played here. No, no, I couldn't play music, um, certainly not when I'm working. Okay. And I distrust the mood that music creates in us. Uh, the cheapest part of ourselves uh, responds with a sort of quack to, uh, to powerful music. What I love about music is control and style and form. I remember when I was writing my first novels, I listened constantly, not while I was writing them, but when I wasn't writing, I listened constantly to the Beethoven uh, middle quartets, the Razumovsky quartets, because of the power of them and the power of their form. Here I was discovering works of art in which, you know, you didn't have to pluck the heartstrings. This was an intellectual music. And I've always loved intellectual art. I still do. I like the notion that there's a mind thinking behind the work that was produced. And do you ever surrender yourself then into the sublime passions of that kind of vulnerable, spontaneous response? Or do you always intellectualize all experiences? Are you asking me I'm a human? Yeah, um, effectively. Pro- <laughs> pro- probably not. Probably not in the accepted sense. Um, of course I have, you know, storms in the soul like everybody mm. else. Um, but I distrust them. I distrust myself when I'm lost to myself. I mean, this is one of the difficulties with popular music now, popular culture in general. It's a, it's a huge universal narcotic, and that's not, that's not good for us. We have to, keep, have to keep control, have to keep thinking. Of course we can let ourselves go. Everybody dances a wild samba every now and then. To hell with it, you know, kick up our heels. But that's not the way to live, I think. But of course, this makes me seem a completely cold fish, which I hope I'm not. No, no, not at all. And what about death, then? John, because, you know, how do you, how do you intellectualise or rationalise that? And is maybe your writing as John Banville in some ways, you know, you have a, a tremendous artistic legacy and does that help you cope? Are you scared in any way? Well, when I was young, I saw death as a great dark hooded figure constantly treading on my heels, trying to stop me from finishing my work. I would feel in the second half of the book that I was wrestling with the death throughout that he was going to get me before I finished the book. I don't feel that way now. I've come to recognize that death is not a thing. It's not this, this, this great, terrible, black thing. That's a leftover from religious classes. Death is simply the end of life. It's terrible. It would be dreadful to leave this wonderful, terrible world. Um, I can't bear the thought of it, but uh, I'm not terrified of it. And I suppose what you're hinting at is true, that if you live your life as fully and as well as you can, then your, your fear of death will, will grow less. It'll never disappear. Who could not be afraid of death? Um, but uh, and it interests me as well. In a way, I, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, an Italian friend of mine. She was 85, 86. And she said that recently she thought that she might have something that was going to kill her, cancer or something. And she said she was fascinated 
to watch herself and to monitor her emotions and her feelings and see. And she said she discovered that she was quite calm and, uh, you know, didn't fly into terror, didn't fly into panic. That was great comfort mm. to me. I would like to think that would be the same with me, but I'd, I'd probably be crawling across the floor screaming, you know, for somebody to rescue me when the time comes. I hope not. But surely age in terms of, it gives you such a broader depth of experience and there must be a feeling of having a tremendous legacy that you will have left by the time you do die. You mean all these failed books that I'll be leaving behind me? I believe so. Uh, I'm afraid that in the face of death, even art is not much of a consolation. Uh, we imagine that it, will, that it will be, but I don't think it will. I think that in death, if we see it approaching, we face ourselves at last without illusions, without lies. And that will be interesting. It will be terrifying, but it will be very interesting. But I have no sense of, of a legacy. One or two of my books, I think, may live. But how long will that be for? And in terms of Judgment Day, you said you have you don't have a God. As Emerson very wisely says, every day is Judgment Day. The notion that we can pile all this stuff up, the good works and the sins, against some future time when we'd be judged is, of course, childish nonsense. This is heaven. This is hell. This is where we're judged. And I think the best people judge themselves very harshly indeed. People with the largest souls realize how small their souls are. I'd like to think that I have some kind of capability for that, but I don't know maybe lying to myself. We spend most of our time busily lying, mm. you know, busily working up uh, untruths in order to make our lives less awful. But in terms of your um, prolific output, your, you know, your books have been made into BBC TV series, you've had tremendous output. So surely something like the Nobel Prize for Literature would make it all the much sweeter. Or how important are these accolades? You've won Kafka, you've won Booker. How important is all this, I suppose, hurdy-gurdy of the business? How important is all of that to you? Or does it really matter in the end? Ernest Hemingway once wrote a wonderful short story, one of his best pieces. It has only six words in it. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. It's a very, very beautiful story. Somebody put together a book and asked various people to write six-word pieces. My contribution was should have written less, lived more. And I feel that very strongly. I've probably written too many books. Somebody once asked Iris Murdoch why did she write so many novels, and she said she felt that each new one would exonerate her from all the ones that had gone before. I have somewhat the same feeling. Keep scrabbling to, to fix past sins by, you know, committing new ones. But you have more fun being busy, John. It strikes me that you're a person who likes to work, work and work. Oh, yes. I mean, work is more fun than fun. I don't know what I'd do if I wasn't constantly working. And the great thing about being a writer is you can work 24 hours a day. You even work when you're asleep. Um, so, yes, I love that. I hate holidays. I hate holidays. I got a postcard once. It was from Brian Freel. He was on holidays in France. And he said, here for two weeks, one with good behaviour. That's my feeling when I'm on holidays. Will somebody please take me away from this and bring me back to my desk? That's a wonderful way to be because I think you only need holidays if you're discontent with your life. If you're perfectly happy with it, what's the point of having a holiday? But does your holiday take you out of your discipline and your routine? And maybe that you're a little scared that if you break that routine and discipline, you're maybe scared to know what you'll unleash within yourself. And maybe that's about fear. That's a very deep question and, uh, and it's a bit of a, bit of a trap too. Whatever way, <laughs> I, whatever way I answer yeah. it, it would be that I've stopped beating my wife. Um, I'm scared of slackening my discipline. Mm -hmm. Because sitting down and making yourself right every morning is a difficult thing. There are days when you say, oh, look, the sun is shining, can't I just go out and enjoy myself? You have to keep at it, you have to keep at it all the time. You cannot slacken. Uh, does writing all the time 
does it really prevent me from living? You know, I don't think it does. I don't think I'd live any differently if I weren't writing. I would probably be even more grumpy and more awful than I am if I didn't have a way of grasping the world through art. But it strikes me sitting here in your writing room off of Batcher's Walk, we've got lovely tropical plants. You have so many memories on your walls as well as pictures. We have Beckett and, and stacks and stacks of papers. But there's such, as I said earlier, a homely feel. You strike me as a man who also lives and a man who's very sensitive and a man who loves his memories. So how can you say that you, you aren't living in that sense? Because this room is all about living. It's eating, breathing, sleeping, living. Oh, I don't say that I don't live and that I haven't lived. I, I have. If I were to die at this moment, I, I couldn't complain that I haven't had a wonderful life. Mm. Uh, I've lived as fully as I possibly can. I've made mistakes, I've hurt people, I've, I've done bad things, uh, as we all have. But, uh, I, you know, I think I've lived as well as possible with what I was given. There's always a tendency, every artist has that sense, that, oh, if I weren't doing this, I'd be out living, I'd be out doing wonderful things, I'd be falling in love, I'd be travelling, I'd be playing with my children. One wouldn't, you know. That kind of, that notion uh, that life is elsewhere is is delusion. Life is here, life is what we do. And I've, you know, I'm content with what I've done. And in what you do, do you break out from that intellectual discipline at times? And maybe, you know, I'm sure <coughs> listeners will be very interested to know, does John Banville like a burger in McDonald's? Do you sit down on the keys and have a Coke? I think the Coke that's going on the keys these days is not quite the kind you mean. Um, <laughs> and I don't have that. I live very simple life. I think there's nothing better than sitting down in an evening with somebody having dinner and a glass of wine. I don't eat burgers. I don't eat meat at all. There's another thing that will put people off. There's a nice story of George Bernard Shaw, the great vegetarian, sitting beside some lady at a grand dinner one night and bending her ear about various things. And she eventually interrupted and said, my goodness, Mr. Shaw, what wouldn't you have done if you'd eaten a steak? Um, but uh, no, I don't eat burgers. And I, uh, I don't have, I suppose, trivial interests. I wish I had. I discovered recently, you know, I never understood pop music. I couldn't understand it at all. As I thought that it must mean something and that I wasn't getting the meaning. And recently, in the last two or three years, it suddenly struck me one day, that's the whole point about pop music. It doesn't mean anything. This is a great revelation. Cheap is cheap. Yes, but there is, I mean, I can see that there's a great, uh, there's a great deal of pleasure to be had from cheapness, from silliness from things that don't have meaning or weight. And I'm sure I indulge in them. I can't think of any at the moment. But uh, I'm sure I have just as strongly developed a taste for cheapness as everybody else. And one of the things that I was surprised to read about, I think that pornography is uh, must be one of the greatest challenges as a writer to write about. And, you know, you said in previous interviews that, you know, trying to write sex into a book can be very difficult and intimate scenes and intimate emotions. But that threw me, I have to say, the pornography. Well, technically it's very difficult to write pornography for the simple reason that the act of sex looks entirely different to the way it feels. Mm. Um, you know, two people engaged in sex, if you stumble upon them, they look ridiculous and obscene. To themselves, they're in transports of ecstasy and happiness and love. So it's very, very difficult technically to, to bridge that gap. Almost impossible, I think. My friend Martin Amos says it is impossible, and I'm inclined mm. to think he's right. You can hint at it, you can do it in metaphors and so on, but mm. it's very difficult to write. But the only book I know that, that does it at all well is Story of All by Pauline Royale, which I think is a marvellous book. Uh, it's very obscene. Well, it's very pornographic. It's different. It's a very beautiful book. It's about love and about power. And we discover, as we read it, that the O is the woman at the centre of it and she's raped and beaten and 
all kinds of appalling things are down to on every page, but she is the one with power because the men are all crazy about her. It's a very, very subtle book, uh, but pornographic as well. That's about the only book I know where that technical challenge was met head on and, and succeeds. And of course, the story of always ludicrous as well in many places. But oh, herself says, look at me, how ridiculous I am in this predicament. You know, that's almost unheard of in pornography because the one thing you cannot have in pornography is laughter. And if you ever watch a pornographic movie or the stuff you see on television now and then when you're in a hotel room somewhere abroad, uh, you say to yourself, if there was one kiss here, just one straight tender kiss, the whole thing would collapse because suddenly the possibility of love would come into it. So pornography is very, very difficult to write. And what about in terms of crime writing? Crime writing is always seen as, you know, a little bit more base or it's not seen as very literary, it's not seen as very arty or sophisticated or intellectual. But will in all that snobby, what about the inherent portrayal of women and violence against women in crime writing? Oh, well, I'm appalled nowadays. I mean, I watch them, these series of Scandinavia and so on, all of which begin with some young woman being violently raped and then, you know, cut to pieces or tortured to death or something. That seems to be the given for every one of these. And detective fiction seems to be the same. And, you know, it's ratcheting up the violence. I don't know how women are not out in the streets protesting against this. But women are buying the books also. I know. Well, you see, violence, we're bombarded with violent images and news of violence. It's on the television, it's on radio, it's in the cinema, it's everywhere around us. But the vast majority of us will never experience violence, anything other than somebody bumping into the back of our car. And we feel somehow that since there's so much violence and so, so many people are striding around bloodstained and walking out of scenes of carnage with a gun hanging from their hands and they've triumphed, we feel somehow inauthentic. We feel that we're missing something if we are not ourselves immersed in violence and hence our thirst for more and more graphic depictions of violence. I mean, the violence is becoming so graphic now that it's becoming almost like science fiction. Mm. I mean, how many of us will know a serial killer, would have any experience of a serial killer? Yet every book you pick up, you know, if you were a Martian coming to the Earth, you would imagine that every second person was a serial killer. Um, so I've tried to write in my crime books, books that are plausible, that actually, you know, take place in a real world mm. where crime is rare, violence is rare, and it's very shocking and terrible when it does happen. Because these are all very old-fashioned attitudes to have. You know, people say, ah, give me blood, give me the girl being raped and eviscerated mm. in the book at the start of the series. But I deplore it. And can I ask you about the booker, winning the booker, and what is it like, that tremendous skyrocketing high and then weeks later you're back in your writing room writing 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 and fail again as you said by Beckett and again and again and try harder what is it like from going from that big highs to the the everyday and the everyday actually can become a low then winning a prize is like having a, a very nice Christmas day you get lots of presents big shiny fire engines and things you know if one were to take it seriously it would be very foolish indeed when I won the booker, two days later I was finishing a review for the late, much-loved Caroline Walsh, book editor of the Irish Times, because I owed her a book review. Um, I was back at my desk. You know, winning the book was wonderful. You sell lots of books. You come to the attention of some people, at least, who would never have heard of you otherwise. But that's it. It's a, and it's a lottery. If there had been five different judges, there would have been six different books on the shortlist and, and a different winner. You have to keep a sense of perspective. But within that sense of perspective, surely the, the love of the reader, the joy that you give to readers must be absolutely amazing. Joe Punter, who reads your book, does that not feel really a lot better, a lot more authentic? Of course, I don't write for book reviewers or academics or historians. I write for, you know, what are referred to as ordinary people. There's no such thing as an ordinary person. I've never met one, but 
for the sake of conversation, say they're ordinary people, they're the people I write for. And I meet them when I do readings and I do festivals and so on. Uh, the audience is full of them, mostly women nowadays, women who are keeping fiction alive. Uh, they're very tender, they're very tentative in their approaches. They, you can see that they long for some kind of self-expression that they imagine I have. But art is not self-expression, it's something else. But yes, uh, the ordinary reader, what used to be called the common reader, that's the person I write for. And I always tell the story. It's, everybody must know it by now. And I was shortlisted before for the book in 89, and I had my brief few minutes of fame. And uh, I was going to the train one morning, and a workman on a bike was passing by, and he saw me. Obviously recognized me from the television or the newspapers. Came towards me at high speed on his bike. I thought he was going to attack me. And just before he drew level with me, he swerved away and said, Great fucking book. And I thought, I will never have as good a review as that ever again. What could be? What could be more delightful than a workman on his bike, mm. you know, giving that great three-word review? Mm. So, yes, I write for readers. And how about for love? I write for myself, first of all, as all writers do, and secondarily for readers. It's an extraordinary coincidence that what I do to please myself also please, pleases hundreds or even thousands of other people. This is a very strange, almost miraculous process. And how about for love? For the joy, for the joy that you get in writing, it's it's your life's pursuit. Of course, I mean, people say to you, "Why do you write?" I say, "Why do I breathe?" Mm. Uh, I wouldn't know how to live now. Reality for me is not reality until it's been pushed through the mesh of words. Uh, it's how I live. Uh, there are lots of other things I do as well. There's a lovely story of Joyce in a restaurant in Paris, a young man coming and dropping to his knees before him and saying, "May I kiss the hand that wrote Ulysses?" And Joyce said, "Yes." So long as you remember, it's done a lot of other things as well. <laughs> Let's end there. Could okay. I just try and persuade you to read out some poetry? Would you mind? No, no, quite poetry. So you're a very poetic person. Yes, I'll read the last, the closing lines of Wallace Stevenson's great poem, Sunday Morning, which is a, a marvellously kind anti-religion poem. It's saying, this is heaven. You know, this is, this is all we can know of paradise. And these are the last lines. We live in an old chaos of the sun, our old dependency of day and night, our island solitude unsponsored free of that wide water inescapable. Deer walk upon our mountains, and the quail whistle about us their spontaneous cries. Sweet berries ripen in the wilderness, and, in the isolation of the sky, at evening, casual flocks of pigeons make ambiguous undulations as they sink downward to darkness on extended wings. And that was novelist John Banville talking to me in his writing room on Dublin's Bachelor's Walk. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Okay, coming up next, something very, very different. We're going to meet with American writer Julia Tsuka and hear about her powerful new book, The Buddha in the Attic. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.